Hey, this is Matt Sorum from Velvet Revolver, The Cult, and Guns N' Roses. And you're listening to Your Morning Coffee with host Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. From Trapital, inside Universal, Sony, and Warner's arms race for your attention. And from Vox, the pop star versus the playlist. From bands in town, measuring metrics to increase your music income. And from Hypebot, paradox of small. More artists find a global audience but have little chance of real income. This stuff and a whole lot more on the 46th edition of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, top of the morning, Jay. It is a toasty and warm oh, Sunday morning warm. here in Southern California. Yeah, it's hot. A heat warning in my neck of the woods. Today. Yeah. So uh, yeah, crazy you, hot. Summer is summer is upon us. Yeah. And before we start, uh, this will be week number three where I'm going to be talking about the documentary 1971, the year music changed everything on Apple Plus. You are three episodes. Into I am it. so good. So I, I'll watch it again because it's so deep. There's so many things going on in it yeah. that yeah. I can see uh, watching this over and over. You blink and you miss something. Absolutely, uh, and and we I, I finished it. It was eight episodes, um, and boy, it's just so well done the way it's laid out and everything. And again, it's it's the music is fantastic, of course, and this is a music podcast. Yeah, but um, you know, it's also all the social aspects that were happening in uh, 1971 and how that Im- impacted music, how music impacted those social events, mm-hmm. and it's boy, it's it's intense. It's a really, you know, it's an. In- Intense documentary, but it's great. It's yeah, great. thank you for so, turning me on to that. I would watch uh, another episode tonight, but tonight and tomorrow night um, on what did I tell you? Was it A and E? A and E. That's right. Uh, the Kiss documentary, uh, Kissery, and nice. uh, I'm, I want to check that out as well. Yeah, that should yeah, be fun. definitely. Well, Jay, talk about the great folks that help us put this program on. Our podcast is brought to you by the good people at HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. 
And Bands in Town, over 55 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Bands in Town, Hypebot. Sure, appreciate them. And by the way, the guy that I get to chat with every Sunday morning is my longtime friend, Jay Gilbert. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which, as you probably know, is uh, weekly music news for the new music business and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music, and Fox Home Entertainment. And I get to do this show every week with a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI and Universal Music, Mike Etchart. Yes, indeed. And, you know, there's a couple of, well, there's really interesting and fascinating stuff we're going to talk about today. But again, one of them is almost printable, right? Worth printing out into that stack of things that you kind of go back and refer to. And so, yeah. Uh, and I think really for me, well, actually there's a couple of them, but but for sure the first one. Yeah. You know, this is on Trapital. Uh, inside Universal, Sony, and Warner's Arms Race for your attention. And a really fascinating article. I was just sitting there reading it again this morning and smiling because it's 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 that kind of, you know, when it's, it's nice to have a, a somebody kind of explain to you the, the nuances and when mm-hmm. you're working for one of these companies if you are um you know you you know what's going on inside your building right but it, it's you know you don't get a really perspective of what's happening in the other buildings and so yeah, that's a good or, analogy yeah and so it's it's really fascinating on the on the different approaches and yeah um th- yeah this thing was yeah. written by dan runcy who's the mm-hmm. founder of trapital and I follow them pretty closely. Um, they have a, uh, a weekly newsletter. They call it their weekly memo. Um, you should subscribe to, if you don't, just go to trapital.co and subscribe to their uh, newsletter. Lots of great uh, information in there. But right. This, it, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and the, and the article basically starts by saying, listen, streaming media and indies have changed the game for three for the three biggest major record labels. Here's a full breakdown on where each company is heading. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, to, again, talking about their approach and what's going on with, with their kind of long-term strategy. Um, anyway, it's, 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 it's a really good article. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something that they stayed in here, and I had a conversation with uh, Mike Warner, who wrote the book, you know, Work Hard, Playlist Hard, and he has a new edition uh, coming out mm-hmm. soon, um, which we'll talk about. But our conversation was about how people call the three larger music groups labels. And it just bec- it's become just part of the language, like the, the three top labels. They're not labels. They're yeah. music groups and they're distributors. And there are a lot of labels underneath, you know, Atlantic, Sub Pop, Beggars, Merge, whatever. Um, and so I don't know why I bump on that when I see that, but I do. It says the strategies of the big three record labels. But, you know, it's... It's become part of our vernacular, right? Uh, Universal Music Group, Warner Music Group, and Sony Music Group, right? And then he goes in to kind of break down the approach and the tactics for each one. And I find that really fascinating. So we'll kick it off with Universal. You know, he starts off about, you know, it's all about their superstars like Taylor Swift. In, you know, 2018, UMG and its, they call it a sub-label, (laughs) <laughs> Republic Records formed a strategic alliance with Taylor Swift, you know, signing a long-term licensing deal with two important clauses. One, 
Taylor Swift would own her future masters. And second, most important to her, is if UMG sold any of its 3.5% ownership stake in Spotify, um, worth about $1.6 billion in June of this year, artists get a share of that money. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I remember when, uh, I think I was, yeah, I was at, or maybe I just started at Warner Music Group. And at that point, Warner Music Group did a deal with R.E.M. Remember, R.E.M.'s first albums were on IRS. And then they were free agents, and they went to uh, Warner Music Group. And there, they had, a, they, they, I think still, uh, a guy named Burtis Downs, who was their manager. Lovely, lovely guy. Um, and basically, the negotiation was that after 20 years, their, uh, their masters revert. And that was a big deal yeah. at the time, a very big deal. And here we are again, you know, it, it's, it's, and good for her. She's got the leverage as they did in the time. And of course, this was in 1989 or so, 90, whenever they, they did that deal. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it that was a, I'm sure that was a, a tense negotiation at yeah. the time for them to get that. Um, but now here we have, Again, her doing that, and but then tying it to the Spotify thing is fascinating. Yeah, and I, I, I knew that the her, her she remained control of her masters. I didn't know that little aspect of the deal. Me neither. And that is really interesting. Yeah, it says here that U- Universal UMG is almost a third of the music industry's revenue, yep. which is massive. And it says that they have the power to play ball with the biggest artist in the game. You know, Republic has Drake, Post Malone, Ariana Grande, The Weeknd, Nicki Minaj, Def Jam has Kanye West, Justin Bieber, Rihanna. You know, it it talks about Motown's joint venture with, uh, you know, hip hop powerhouse quality control records, which we'll talk about in a minute, and Lil Baby. And of course, Interscope, Geffen A&M, which has Billie Eilish, DaBaby, Eminem, Lady Gaga, and the newcomer who's just blowing up is Olivia Rodrigo. But it just goes back to that sub-headline, Universal is all about its superstars. We'll talk about the others in a second, but keep that in the back of your head. That's where their focus is on those superstars and on that marketing share. And as they say, though, that's a lot of stars to keep happy. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) they will all want to own their future masters, just like Taylor Swift. Remember when UMG CEO Lucian Grange said that Drake has an unlimited budget? All of these artists want that too, and many more who aren't listed don't need unlimited budgets, but will still ask. And generally, no superstar asks for less money and control over time. Quite the opposite. Yeah. So as they say, UMG's strategy works now. The company breaks revenue records every quarter, but how long will the bull market last? The company hopes that streaming revenue growth can offset the cost to maintain its roster, but that's a risky game. Yeah. Indeed it is. Yeah. So So that's universal. um, Yeah. And then let's move on to Warner. It says that Warner is moving. Oh, 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 wait. Actually, we we need to jump back to Universal for a second. Sure. Because a couple important parts they talk about here. It says Universal needs its stars for two of its upcoming initiatives. First, the record label plans to spin off from parent company Vivendi and go public at the end of 2021. In 2020, Tencent acquired 20% stake in the label. In 2021, UMG announced it will sell 10% to a special purpose acquisition company, also known as a SPAC, an SPAC, run by investor Bill Ackman. The deal values UMG at $42 billion, nearly five times its 2013 valuation. And I do want to point out, we've talked about this before, you know, we were at Universal um, 
and as 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 the uh, what do they call that when when like a going out of business sale where they just you know the the Universal parent company at the time Universal Studios could not wait to get rid of Universal Music Group because of file sharing and everything it looked like the future of of recorded music was just going into the toilet mm-hmm. and and what a turn of events my how things uh, have changed my how things have changed uh, so so that's kind of the first thing yeah uh, and it says second uh, the major record label has expanded in both we're still talking universal here in both Africa and Asia both continents have great potential for superstar development that potential is compounded when matched with proven American stars uh, Nigeria's Wiz Kid blew up after his feature on Drake's uh, One Dance and Justin Bieber's Spanish vocals on Despacito remix extended the life of a massive hit yeah as Lucian Grange explained back in January of 2020, I've been around long enough. I've seen two or three very, very significant cycles. I think all we can do is follow our North Star and add commercial, legal, and financial discipline to it. Okay. Legal, financial, and discipline, whatever that is. Because usually you don't talk about discipline so much in the entertainment business. Yeah, well, it's a different business now. It's, it you is. know, it's predictable um, with streaming. And, yeah. you know, uh, it again, it just kind of, points back to universal is all about its superstars that subheading and and that market share and which is really interesting to kind of contrast that with the others so with warner it says warner music group won't match umg star power instead it's capturing more attention in other parts of the value chain i mean you're seeing this with acquisitions right it says warner scooped up outlets like uprocks hip-hop dx and imgn home to the uh, black culture meme machine daquan these companies can boost Warner's access to music fans, but record labels aren't well positioned to develop media outlets. That's not their core competency. So it's really interesting. It's just a, a little bit different tact in the way that they're going about growing their business. Right. And that, but that little thing is really interesting, talking about core competency. And again, we've talked about this uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Warner Music Group, I worked for their, divi- their then division called Warner Active, which was uh, their attempt at basically doing in-game development, uh, video game development. And again, not their core competency of the music group. And in the end, they kind of washed their hands of it. They, they, they jumped out of it. So, you know, we've seen this a lot in the music space over the, over the decades, basically, of them jumping into things that, again, not core competencies and kind of jumping back out and going, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have been there. But they did. They talk about it in here. So in 2019, uh, Warner Music Group joined an $11 million investment round in the non-fungible token <laughs> NFT company Dapper Labs, mm-hmm. uh, which is home to NBA Top Shot, one of the most successful businesses yes. selling NFTs. Um, and then uh, in January 2021, they made an eight-figure investment in the video game platform Roblox before it went public in March. This blew me away, Jay. Roblox is used by half of U.S. children under 16, yeah. according to The Verge. Half yeah. of U.S. children it's a thing. under 16. It's a thing. We talk about it a lot. Uh, and of course, uh, we also talked about the standalone Lil Nas X livestream concert. Roblox reached 33 million fans. So they invested in that. And it says Warner's buying spree builds direct audience access as digital streaming services wield more and more influence. Streaming may have saved the industry, but labels don't want to rely solely on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon to run their businesses. If labels become overly dependent on the tech giants, they will get squeezed on margins when it's time to negotiate licensing deals, renegotiate licensing deals. Yeah. 
So I, you know, I, I, it's it's kind of a clever spin. Yeah, on, it's on, smart. On, you know, yeah. adopting these platforms, um, investing in, and sometimes acquiring some of these. He talks about Peloton a little bit. Uh, that's uh, Warner CEO uh, Stephen Cooper. Um, he says he doesn't show much, you know, concern when CNBC asked him about Apple and Spotify accounting for 27% of Warner's 2019 revenue. He focused more on emerging media companies gaining traction. And he said it quote, a couple of years ago, Peloton was associated with people dressed in very colorful uniforms, riding bikes through the Alps. Today it's an exercise app. Nobody heard of TikTok two years ago. Social platforms are embracing and adopting new uses of music. We think distribution will continue to be fragmented. I couldn't agree with him more. I mean, you and I talk about Twitch a lot, mm -hmm. and we talk about TikTok, and there's so many others. It is becoming more fragmented, for sure. Absolutely. And then uh, last, they talk about Sony Music, and basically Sony's approach is basically buying up all the indies. As they said, it's been outspending like it has leftover FSA money that expires. Yeah, that's soon. funny. In a six-month span from 2020 to 2021, Sony Music spent $1.4 billion acquiring independent record labels like AWOL, Human Resources, Som Livre in Brazil, Believe, its remaining stake in the orchard, and it's, by the way, and it bought up its remaining stake in the orchard. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. And formed a partnership with uh, BeatStars, a beat production marketplace. If you're an indie distributor making waves, Sony has your company's name written on a whiteboard somewhere in its office. <laughs> kind of I crazy, love the way you know? this guy writes. It's so good. I, know, I do too. Yeah. Uh, as it said, it's on the it's on this tip because the indie movement is hotter than ever. In 2021, 60,000 we talked about this, 60,000 songs get added to Spotify every day. 50 50% more than in 2019 with so much yeah. talent and technology out there, indies have found new needs to fill and get creative about the kinds of support they offer artists today that didn't exist 10 years ago or even six months ago. Yeah. So hence Sony kind of jamming in here. Um, and it's as uh, Rob Stringer, the, of course, the CEO, said, it's much more expensive today to sign talent than it was six, six months ago. It's way more expensive than two years ago. And going back to the 2000s, the, the download era, it's not even comparable. Yeah. Talent acquisition is more expensive because entertainment revolves around fans' preferences. Attention is the economy, and that attention is harder than ever. Yes, and we talk about that every day. It's, you know, that attention. Um, it's an attention economy, and we're going to touch on that on another story here. He says the downside for indie labels um, with these acquisitions is is hitting a money ceiling. Indies struggle to maximize reach for their biggest artists compared to the majors. Mm -hmm. Too often when indie labels sell, it's from a position of weakness. That's why indies are perfect acquisition targets for Sony. So we've seen, you know, Universal's kind of uh, market share, big hit artists investing in that. You know, we've seen on the Warner side, you know, investing in some of these companies and platforms. And now on the Sony side, going after these indies, um, which, you know, can be very lucrative for them. Yeah, but they mentioned that at the end they kind of say uh, their take is is UMG is in the best position. This is still a superstar industry. The superstar model has been here since the heyday of monoculture with acts like the Beatles, Pink Floyd, and David Bowie. When Universal acquired EMI in 2011, 
It's really been 10 years ago. God. Wow. Seems like it was like five years ago. Uh, it gained the catalogs of those artists, boosted its market share, and guaranteed its position to attract the most valuable artists moving forward. Granted, Warner and Sony have superstars, too. Um, I mean, they all uh, have UM, superstars. They do, right. Yeah, just, but UMG is still on yeah. top because it has more artists at that level and the best opportunity to acquire them in the future. Yeah. So, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, uh, the last spin line on, in this, you know, oh, in the, just yes, the very end of this article um, got me thinking. He says, you know, will Drake and Taylor Swift still be superstars 10 years from now? And I had this conversation with a friend of mine. We were talking about, like, who were the last, like, mega artist or, you know, huge band, you know, that could fill up any arena anywhere. And we were talking about bands like U2, for example. And then after kind of that era, they're becoming fewer and farther between as a career, you know, could uh, some of these new artists fill up an arena? Absolutely. But mm -hmm. will they be able to do it five years from now? That's the question. Right. And by the way, a little, a little trivia thing on Drake. So if you're watching the 1971 documentary, there's a ton on Sly Stone. And Sly Stone's bass player was Larry Graham, the first guy to kind of do the boom, boom, the, the slap play. And that is Drake's uncle. No. Yes. That's a yes. great Larry piece Graham of trivia. Drake's uncle. There you go. I'm here for you, Jay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Trivia. There you go. So great article on Trapital. Yes. And one that is, again, almost worth printing out because... You know, as as with, with this with this information, it's kind of interesting to kind of watch the moves as they happen in the future, and see if they kind of each continue on these paths, or if they in, in they kind of recalibrate and say, okay, we were doing that now, we're going to do something else. So yeah, we shall see. Yes, we shall see. All right, next up, Jay. This from Vox, and this was another great article: the pop star versus the playlist. And I know you must have conversations like this all the time yeah. with the folks that you work with. And it's so true. And this was so well written. Um, it was written by Charlie Harding, who's a songwriter, executive producer, and co-host of Vox Media's uh, Switched on Pop podcast. Mm -hmm. Fantastic piece. Um, says that streaming services playlists make it easier for listeners to find music worth playing, but experts say they're also breaking fans' relationship with artists. And I'm hearing this a lot. And one of the first examples they give is this artist, Trevor Daniel, uh, in 2018, released the song Falling um, to little fanfare, it said, you know, for many reasons. But two years later, the song blew up thanks to the internet. First, it was picked up by influencers on Instagram. Then it became a TikTok meme featured in more than 3 million videos. The social media hype led to traditional media success. You know, the song spent 38 weeks on Billboard's Hot 100, peaking at number 17. It was streamed more than a billion times on Spotify, where it was featured on prominent playlists like Chill Hits, Beast Mode, and Top Gaming Hits. Then the artist attempted a follow-up uh, called Past Life. It was featuring Selena Gomez and produced by Phineas, you know, Billie Eilish. Mm -hmm. uh, the song peaked at number 77 on Billboard, left the charts in five weeks, and had just 10% of the streams that Falling achieved on Spotify. He has yet to come close to replicating the accomplishment of Falling. Success in the music industry used to rely on radio plays and premium retail end caps, you know, at you know, like Tower and Best Buy. It's no secret that streaming has changed everything, providing unfettered access to the largest catalog of music in history. It also presents a paradox of choice. What should you listen to when you can hear nearly any song that's been recorded? 
Well, and this reminds me of my early days of being a product manager. Um, and somebody, a, a, a wily veteran, told me, because you know, when you're when you're when you're first starting out, you think, well, what is better than having a hit single? Well, when you're talking about artist development, that in many in many cases can be the worst thing. You know, when you're when you're working with artist development, you want people to fall in love with the artist, not the song. Because what if that artist doesn't deliver a song like that yeah. the next time? And so the Trevor Daniel track, clearly people fell in love with the song and not the artist. And he was a he was a, a new artist when that song came out. And understandable how people fall in love with that song. It's kind of a cool song. Yeah. It's not an epic song. I remember hearing on the radio going, Huh. Yeah, it's okay, but for whatever reason, you know, it, it was a song for the time. Uh, but here we have again uh, the classic case, and this goes back to the early days of of artist development. It's somebody fell in love with the song and not the artist, and now the artist is struggling because he can't. He, it, for whatever reason, the timing isn't right, or he doesn't have that in his in his quiver of yeah. of hit songs to come back to. And that's you know when yeah. when you're working with artists, I'm sure you 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 kind of. But there is a balance, of course. You're promoting a song. Yeah. So you want people to like the song, and you want th- that's kind of the 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 mechanism with which to get uh, momentum right. for the artist. But it's a a playlist balance. is not a marketing plan. You know, it's got to be artist development. It's got to be yes. fan engagement. Um, I love this company, um, um, Milk and Honey. Um, I've been yes. reading about them, and and their their CEO is Lucas Keller, and he's he says some really interesting things in here. He says that streaming is a great way to make an artist faceless. And I thought that was stunning. And then, you know, his roster includes um, people who have written for BTS, Ariana Grande, Gwen Stefani. And at one point in 2019, 10 of the songs in the top 40 were written or produced by Milk and Honey Talent. And that's why I think you have to kind of perk up and listen when when, uh, Lucas Keller says things. And he just said, the song becomes bigger than the artist, you know, to your point, Mike. And that is... That is a challenge with all of the songs that are uploaded daily to the digital service providers. It's in his words, it's becoming more difficult uh, to get heard. Uh, And the last little quote from him, it says, if you look at all of the premium music released on the digital storefront right now and tried to jam it into a record store, it'd need to be a Home Depot. (laughs) exactly exactly and of course yeah those guys uh i mean they've it's you know it's basically a production and songwriting house and so successful incredibly successful right and for him it doesn't matter if the artist makes i mean of course it would be benefit them because they will theoretically keep doing the same thing for that artist but they're out there with the music and the production of it and and so, you know, that's a concern, but it's not the same concern if you're managing that artist. Uh, yeah. But it's an interesting take on it that, you know, this is, it, it again, it's, it's like everything in the new music business relative to the old music business, many of the same principles apply, yeah. but, but they're just on steroids now. You know, so, so it's an, you know, you've got so much competition out there. It's so hard to, to, to do artist development because there's so many damn artists. Yeah, and everybody's looking um, for that silver bullet. They, yes, they always have. That's, that's exactly. why we say a playlist is not a marketing plan. You know, there's so many other things that you need to get flying information when you're putting together a marketing plan for artist development because some of these playlists, you're in for a week. They switch out every week. Some of them might be two right. weeks. Um, I like smaller user-curated playlists because typically you stay in them a lot longer 
and it's real fan engagement. I thought it was interesting that, that the article states that today, three services make up two-thirds of the streaming economy. Spotify, which has an estimated 32% of the market, Apple Music, 18%, and Amazon Music, 14%, but they leave off YouTube, which YouTube, is yeah. you know the, the big elephant in the room. 68% um, of all listening on Spotify was from a company or user playlist. Its platform has more than 4 billion playlists, 4 billion, 3,000 of which are owned by Spotify, um, curated by, you know, algorithms and editors. So the rest of those are users like, like you and me. Well, and again, we're, you know, but, but obviously playlists are built around a song and it says, uh, pop stardom has always relied on a blend of catchy songs and compelling personas. The music video era gave you a big dose of their personality whenever you discovered new songs. And the same thing with an album. An MTV study on fandom showed that fans expect to have direct interaction with artists. But in a music economy built on playlists, the listener is much less likely to be aware of who they're listening to. Playlists yes. are a lean-back experience. You choose the mood you're in. And the music just flows. Cannon believes that, uh, this is Jesse Cannon, by the way, is a music producer, uh, that playlisting is breaking the fan-artist connection. When we're making playlists, there's no depth whatsoever to the relationship. I can't tell you how many times I'll be at home listening to something, and I know the song. I'm like, who does this again? And I'll, you know, I'll have to look and see who that is, because it's just... It's not even really in my yeah. front of mind as yeah. I listen to music, which is way different than it used to be when you would put on clearly an album that you selected of the artist. You know what this reminds me of is when, I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s, there was a big campaign to back announce on radio yes, because people would play right. things on the radio and they wouldn't say who it was. And I run into that when I'm listening to um, a curated playlist that I didn't put together. I'll hear a great song and... But I, I don't have the time to kind of go back through and dig in there and see what that is. I may be doing something else. So mm -hmm. you've kind of lost that. So when, when you say that, you know, they've lost this connection, absolutely they have. It's a different, it is a lean back experience. Yeah. And that's not a good thing when you're talking about arts development. And I don't know. I mean, well, you're, you're, you're in it day to day, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I guess you, you, you obviously, you you mine and nurture other social media outlets to 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 Everything. associate yeah, uh, yeah exactly uh, so you just again you getting back to your statement a few minutes ago a playlist is not a marketing place. but for some and people you know it is you'd be surprised right. almost every week someone will say to me there when we talk about goals for a project it will be to be on a, a certain playlist and you kind of have to back out of that and say okay that's a that's one goal but let's mm -hmm. talk about all of these others. And it says here, new songs develop on social media platforms and grow on playlists before making it to radio. And that's true. Music marketers have repositioned themselves to build influence over TikTok feeds. PR firms market their ability to get their clients on playlists through spot, uh, though Spotify maintains a stance of editorial independence. And I want to comment on this because there are publicity firms that we've dealt with for years that have pivoted and they and even radio promotion people that have pivoted from doing their core competency to mm -hmm. saying oh well we now have a network of user curated playlists that we can reach out to um it may be the playlists that are run by the publications or by the radio stations to survive they've had to pivot their business to show that that's 
you know, part of their offering. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Um, and one of the things, you know, you, you, you kind of hear about these viral stars, this article correctly points out, but overnight viral stars are rare and building a lasting audience is harder than ever as social media platforms are flooded by celebrities and established acts. Many artists who break out on TikTok become one-hit wonders, like we were talking about. Their songs eclipse their short-lived public identities as audiences move on to the next Yes. Game. And those who do break out still need to work their way up the ladder from social media to streaming and finally to radio to reap substantial and real financial that, reward. It's so accurate, so true, and it's, it's something that we say uh, weekly, if not daily. Uh, it's spot on. Exactly. And of course, when you're talking about, uh, you know, making money, it says uh, performers aren't the only ones affected by streaming, though streaming has been a financial boon for labels. Songwriters still depend on radio play for the bulk of their income. Radio pays much higher royalties to songwriters compared to streaming. A woman named Emily Warren, who has written hits for Dua Lipa and the Chainsmokers, among others, told, told this writer that she knows songwriters with hundreds of millions of streams and Grammy nominations who still drive Uber for a living. Uh, but she says a songwriter with just two big radio hits can be set up to retire. Yeah. So, you know, again, you, you've got, uh, there's just, it's Well, there's some a lot reasons of stuff. for that too, right? We talk about yeah. co-writes. Um, and yes. I think the average now is somewhere around four uh, co-writes on, yeah. on popular music. And it's, it's becoming a, a little bit watered down. You know, artist and songwriter Julia Michaels said, with streaming, songwriters are lucky if they make anything. If you mm -hmm. don't have the single, you're basically effed, you know? And yeah. it's kind of scary. It's a scary time to be an artist. There's, there's a lot of expectations. You have to be a TikTok star. You have to be on social media all the time. You have to be a model. So it's a challenging uh, new music industry that can send you in a lot of different directions. Um, but the bottom line is it can't be focused just on that, that big track that gets a lot of views on TikTok or a lot of spins on Spotify. People get distracted by that shiny thing. And it's, it's the same as it's always been. It's artist mm -hmm. development, growing your fans, engaging your fans, keeping them engaged. And, Unfortunately, people are looking for that uh, that quick fix. Yeah, me too, Jay. <laughs> but it doesn't usually come. So, really interesting article again yeah. on Vox, and uh, yeah. uh, that Ira got or Iris Gottlieb wrote that. And uh, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. Uh, it was Charlie Hardy. Yeah, who wrote that was that singer songwriter and the guy that yeah. does it switched on pop podcast. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. My apologies. No, that's okay. And this 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 article I read through. Um, Apple News Plus, and so I I sent it around to people just to make sure they could open it, um, yeah. and and they could. So hopefully you yeah. didn't have any problem. Uh, I know I'm a subscriber. Yeah, yeah me absolutely. too. It's, but it, it's uh, yeah. and by the way, and we've talked about that too. That has been something that I'm so excited about. Is as a magazine junkie, Apple News Plus is a great deal. Great it's deal. Really, really cool. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, on to the next. Jay, how about? Uh, bands in town measuring metrics to increase your music income. Again, uh, talking about income near and dear to my and I'm heart. I'm sure this is a conversation you also have with artists all the time. Yeah, and you know how much I love uh, data and metrics and I, and money. Uh, yeah, distant third. It's not my primary motivator, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like to eat Liar. too. But you know, th this this was a guest post by uh, Randy uh, Chertko and uh, Jason Fian of a uh, Disc Makers blog mm -hmm. and. I 
I love these kinds of articles because, you know, you have um, a lot of data at your disposal, either for free or low cost. And I always tell people there are three audiences that you have to look at. You know, one is commerce, sales streams and downloads. Okay. You have to look at that and know who that is. But then you have to look at uh, kind of the social end of it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Those two audiences don't always align. Then you look at the third one, who, who are the butts in the seats? You know, typically artists in a non-COVID world, when they're playing live, they look out in the audience and they go, oh, my audience is that, you know, it's 25 year old females. But then they mm-hmm. find out that, you know, maybe on their socials, that that's not the same. And maybe, you know, with the commerce, they can learn some things there. So looking at all these uh, metrics, look, it can be overwhelming. If you don't want to do it, you know, definitely have somebody that you know that loves data, take a look at it, right? But it says in in this piece, you know, unfortunately, many music businesses are run by just, quote unquote, eyeballing it and and going with feelings about what's working or not. And I find that to be true all the time. There's an old joke in in data that says um, uh, analysis is like a lamppost. You can use it to illuminate or you can use it to lean on. And most people use it to lean on to kind of support what they've been saying. But if you're open to it, um, there's a lot that you can learn. And I'll just take the first one, you know, streaming metrics. So there's Spotify for artists, Apple Music for artists, Amazon Music for artists, et cetera. There's a Pandora amp. There's so many different ways that you can look at your consumption and, you know, get a sense of, you know, who's, who's listening to my music? Where are they listening to it? You know, um, how are they listening to it? What's the source of stream? You know, what's, you know, what's my skip rate? How can I compare one track to another? Because when you release music, it's not linear. It doesn't mean that if you release a track and it does well, that the next one's going to do well. Mm -hmm. Um, seasonality timing, there's all sorts of things, but the first one they point out is streaming metrics and it's free basically and it's really easy to find. And then there are some really great services like Chartmetric and Vibrate and, you know, services like that where you can get even greater detail. And if you're distributed um, through one of the larger distributors, they typically have a dashboard where you can go in and get even more insights. It is a bit overwhelming, though, because be. there is so much data out there. So, like, when it comes to streaming metrics, they mention you know, just find out which songs are your most popular and use those songs in your marketing and promotion campaigns, obviously. Uh, routinely check uh, stats and data to see if they change whenever you launch a new promotion campaign. Uh, if you can get demographic information, use it to improve the effectiveness of your promotion campaigns and use your top songs to generate merchandise ideas by highlighting key lyrics, song titles, and more. Mm-hmm. So that's I. this is the kind of thing that for me, because... You like data. I do. Uh, my uh, my head spins to be yeah. honest. I mean, I just like glaze over, and at some point, I just the the the, the machine, the, the, which is a feeble machine between my ears anyway, just turns off. <laughs> so I need kind of like this, like this. These are four points to do. You know, if you do nothing, get these four points yeah. when it comes to streaming metrics. Yeah. Next up, of course, is social media metrics, and uh, again, how to use your social media metrics to make more money. 
again, determine the demographics of your fans, including age, gender, dislikes, likes. Um, And if provided information about location, track this so you know where your fans live. Yeah. This can help you plan tours and live shows and give you insight into where your music might be generating royalties. Some of this sounds really complicated, Mike, but I think the, the bottom line on all of this is like, let's, let's take social media metrics, look and see what's working. You can tell from your posts and your ads and what's going on, what is getting engagement, likes, forwards, video views, comments, all of those things. Do more. It sounds pedantic, but do more of what's working (laughs) and less of what doesn't. You don't have to be, you know, um, a mathematician to do that. You can easily see what you're doing and how it's working or not. And then with social media metrics, you can also see how you're performing, you know, for example, with Facebook, you can see how am I performing against the market? You know, am I underperforming, overperforming, you know, and all of that. So it doesn't have to be super complicated. And again, if you're, if you're not into it, there's somebody on your street team, your mom or dad, you know, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever, (laughs) Somebody. somebody loves this stuff and can yeah. dig into it for you. Of course, merch sales they talk about. Uh, don't just track how much money you made. Dig in and figure out which items sold and when. For in-person merch sales, track what you sell at each event. For online, find out where sales are coming from and by studying the incoming links your customers followed. Lots of common sense stuff, but you know, if you're an artist, these, these things aren't necessarily your core competency. Yeah, I, Hopefully songwriting and performing. Is. Yeah, I, I wasn't thinking about merch sales, but that makes a lot of sense. For a couple of campaigns, we use this really great company called Bandware. And what's cool mm-hmm. about Bandware is they have this great dashboard. So you can go in and you own the data. So your customers that buy your coffee mugs and t-shirts and all of that, you now have their information, which can be really powerful when you book a tour or have new merch, that sort of thing. But that's the beauty of a lot of this being online now is that you have that information. And when you're doing merch, you know, at venues, a lot of my artists, they take that very seriously because it's, you know, that's determines whether they're going to sleep in a hotel or in the van. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Yeah. Or have enough gas to just get to the next night. Uh, Of course, they mentioned affiliate sales and links. And this is something I notice all the time, but I don't necessarily think about it. Uh, It's an income stream every musician should take part in because it's free. In brief, online stores like Amazon let you make special links to items they sell and will give you a cut of the sale if people buy it or if anything else on their website. So dozens of affiliate programs out there, usually free, and use as many as possible as long as they make sense for your music business. Um, and I'm sure you tell this to artists and artist managers all the time. Yeah. You know, it's again, it's kind of, you know, it's a lot of this stuff individually isn't anything dramatic, but collectively, um, it it can make a dramatic yeah. difference in yeah. in making music your job yeah. or making music your your hobby. Yeah, I'm finding that people are a lot more savvy today. Um, yeah, I think the pandemic really helped. I know that sounds bad, but it made us really look at, well, how can we make revenue if we're not touring? What other things can we do? And uh, I've had so many conversations. People are so much more savvy about other revenue streams. And then this last one, you know, your accounting books, you know, they talk about (laughs) people are not just ignoring this anymore. They're looking at 
um, the yeah. data. Where are we making revenue? How can we increase it? What are the things that we're doing that are working? Um, super great uh, pro tips here from Bands in Town. Absolutely. And our last article for the day is from our buddies over at Hypebot, The Paradox of Small. More artists find a global audience but have little chance of real income. Yeah. Oy. Yeah. This was written by one of my, my favorite uh, writers, uh, Mark Mulligan, um, uh -huh. who I had the pleasure of meeting at the Music Tectonics, uh, their last conference, just briefly, but just enough to tell him you know, what a huge fan I am of what he's doing at Midia and Keith Jopling and the team over there. I listen to their podcasts. Um, they do a lot of great um, research. And uh, this, some of this just puts a finer exclamation point on our previous article, you know, um, about this attention economy and, you know, how hard it is to generate revenue from just one source. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Mark says that, you know, when the history books are written about our current times, the rise of the creator culture will go down as one of the most impactful paradigm shifts. It's a dynamic that extends far beyond music, but it's impacting the music industry more directly than it is other entertainment industries, largely in part because the music business is not set up for the economies of micro audiences. Very interesting. Yeah. And it says, until it is, artist royalty woes will remain a festering wound that risks infecting the entire business. The solutions will, will require a combination of a new approach to monetization yeah. and a realistic understanding of what streaming can truly deliver to an artist community that is continuing to grow faster than streaming revenues. Yeah. And that's an important part, and we certainly talk about that a lot, which is how this, it's just insane when you look at uh, the amount of, of new material going up every single Yeah, how do you day. rise above... The clutter, and there, there's these sub-headlines in this article that are brilliant. The first one, more mouths to feed, right? Despite the challenges of the pandemic, streaming revenue actually grew in 20% or by 20% in 2020 with subscribers, it's easy for you to say, subscriber numbers growing even faster over the same period. The number of releasing artists grew by more than a third. The math is brutally simple. More new artists than more new music Revenue meant lower average income per artist. Um, as economist Will Page, who we talk about a lot here, as yeah. he put it, there are more mouths to feed. Yeah, even within the fast-growing artist direct segment, where revenues grew dramatically faster than the overall market at 34%, the average income per artist grew by just 2% to, get this, $234 a year. That's right. Just $234 a year across all recorded music formats. And of course, that figure is heavily skewed by a few thousand superstar independent artists with the vast majority earning far, far less. Big numbers, small income, yeah. right? With Artist Direct numbering 5 million in 2020, never have there been so many people releasing their music to the global public. This creator revolution is unprecedented and represents 5 million dreams being chased. But with just $234 of annual income up for grabs, the reality is that nearly all of these dreams will be unfulfilled. Yes, and but that is an average. and It is an average. And, and you That's and I right. talked about this you know, last week a little bit. It's really important that you look at the the haves and the have-nots. Yes, there mm -hmm. are people who are making a lot of money in the music industry, but it's not all on sales streams and downloads. 
Exactly. There's so much more to it. You know, um, I I thought it was interesting. It says with artists numbering, you know, 5 million in 2020, never have there been so many people releasing music, right? What, what this matters compounded by the fact that streaming numbers can appear big, but deliver only small revenues. Now it's also the fact, and, and we don't go into it too deep in this story, but we talk about not only does streaming not pay a ton of money and it shouldn't, a stream is not worth a download. A download is not worth a CD. A CD is not worth an album. You know, we've had that argument many times. Um, but people are less engaged. So you're making less money and you're less engaged. Right. So yep. you need yep. to look at engaging with, and, and look, I'm not bashing streaming. I love streaming and I love the fact that I can listen to one of 70 million tracks, you know, on my portable device at any time. I think that's absolutely amazing, but you can't just focus on streaming. There are all these other ways to engage with your audience and also all these other ways to make revenue. What I find fascinating in this new music business is watching how people are using these different platforms and making money. And, and just to give just a, a quick shout out and plug, in, which I rarely do, for, for my other podcast, Music Biz Weekly, we had two really important episodes this last week talking about what I just mentioned. One is with uh, the head of music for Twitch, um, Tracy Chan. And then the mm-hmm. other is with uh, the CEO of Songfluencer, Johnny Cloherty. And it just it puts an exclamation point on the fact that you can make it in this new music business, but it is a business and you can't put all your eggs in that streaming basket. Right. One thing they put out in this article, which is interesting, says, you know, they talk about the, the 0.05%. They say, this is the paradox of this, of small, more artists can reach global audiences and drive sizable streaming metrics, but have little or no realistic prospect of meaningful income. Much of the streaming income debate is revolved around the plight of the middle class artists, but the biggest dynamic at play is the creation of the amateur enthusiast class. In the old music business, these artists lived in a different world from professional artists. Mm-hmm. They played in local bars and sold a handful of CDs when they recorded at a local studio. And we talk about this a lot. Now they use the same creator tools as the pros and have their music on the same platforms. This can give the impression of playing in the same league as the pros, but they're not. If they are good enough, do the right things and get the breaks, that then they can get into that league. But that will only happen for about... Point oh five percent. Amen. But that's brother. interesting to to yeah. to kind of talk about that amateur enthusiast mm-hmm. class again. That you think you're on the playing field, but you're you know you're not. Yeah. And and then of course the most important thing they talk about because we always talk about streaming royalties and what's going on in the UK. It says streaming fixing streaming royalties will not change things. Even if you doubled royalty rates, a hundred thousand streams would still only get about a thousand bucks for an independent artist. Meanwhile, it re- would result in streaming services losing forty cents on every dollar earned, and that's just to cover the royalty rates. Um, so you know, even if you doubled the, with the which will never happen, um, you're still not really talking about anybody making any significant amounts right. of money from streaming, right? Unless you want to do something like China's Tencent does, you know, where only yes. a third of their revenue is from streaming. Exactly, There's a, and it is a different culture, but they do tipping and experiences. And mm-hmm. the the line that jumped out at me here, um, it, he says that having dreams appear to be within touching distance, but somehow never quite within grasp, is fertile ground for breeding discontent 
and resentment. Yes. And I meet people all the time who are kind of resentful about this new music business. And my response is, you know, follow the money. Look where the, fa- you know, go to where the party is. Watch what's happening. Um, there's so many great things evolving right now, you know, in plain sight. You just have to kind of let go of that old economy of you get signed by a label, you get on the radio, you tour, and your life is, you know... Changed forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, they mentioned like lots of other options, selling songwriting services on Soundbetter, selling beats on Splice, merch on Bandcamp, subscriptions on Twitch, mm-hmm. royalty-free music on Artlist, uh, live stream concert tickets with Drift, artist subscriptions on Fan Circles, uh, digital collectibles on Fanoply. Um, but, you know, there's but a they lot of things. One you can. that is really big here uh-huh. that that I see artists getting so successful at, and I'm surprised they didn't bring it up here, and that are experiences. So it kind of yes. started with, you know, the cameo and thrills.co.uk and OnlyFans and Patreon mm-hmm. and all of this. Well, now it's getting bigger and bigger, and artists, especially under the pandemic, are writing and recording with their fans. There's access to their fans for Q and A's. There's some of uh, my clients are actually creating custom um, merch by hand for certain uh, fans. There's so many of these different experiences. One of our artists will in a non COVID world, will go record shopping with you, have dinner with you. And, you know, I've been doing house concerts for, you know, 20, 25 years. Um, there are so many other experiences that you can, um, put on your website and socials and really engage with, uh, your fans. And the last thing I'll kind of say on this is that that photo of you with your favorite artist is currency, you know, on socials Mm -hmm. and finding a way to do those paid meet and greets and things like that. And again, I know there's a pandemic, but this is just one other thing, one other revenue stream, but you just pointed out like 10. Yeah, absolutely. But interesting, and this this article ends with an interesting point that I had not considered. It said streaming services must fix the problem, and then it says, or someone else will. Mm -hmm. It says, nevertheless, the market also needs something more a platform glue that binds together creation, audience, and consumption. Contrast a music artist with a games streamer. Games streamers create streams, finds, and monetizes their audience all within one platform. A music artist, however, creates music in one platform, takes it to another for distribution, and then feeds it into streaming platforms where the artist has no direct relationship with their audience. There are exceptions to the rule, of course, BandLab, SoundCloud, YouTube, but they are just exceptions, not the rule. Either streaming services need to start uh, backing up their creator-first language with creator-first tools, or instead watch from the sidelines as someone else does it for them. Whoever leads the charge... The paradox of small will finally become a slightly less, become slightly less of a paradox. So I've never kind of thought of it in those terms, but absolutely right. Yeah, you know, it's like it, all of this stuff you have to bounce around between lots of different things, and so maybe there is a a collated option in the future. Yeah. I don't know what and whom that would be with, but yeah. Who knows? So great, great piece, piece by Mark. Yeah, by Mark by Mulligan. Mark Mulligan. Um, yeah. I read it twice to try to digest all of it Me because too. there's so much in this. Um, but he's, you know, you should follow him and follow Media. I'm subscribed to their newsletter. Um, really great insights and analysis on the music industry. Um, fantastic job, Mark. Indeed.
And on that note, Jay, we do need to wrap up episode number 46, man, and, and head out. Actually, I'm not going anywhere. It's hot outside man, already. Stand <laughs> I'm still preaching. I need to go over and, and turn up the AC. <laughs> but uh, I know Jay and I certainly appreciate all of you yes, listening we to do. us. Boy, we, it makes our week when we when we hear comments and things like that. So it's, it's, uh, it's fun, and we appreciate uh, us lending your ears every week for this podcast. Yep. So thank you all for listening, and we appreciate it. And we will see you next week for episode number 47 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.